Welcome to Troubleshooting Agile, a regular problem-solving session for Agile teams. Well, hi there, Jeffrey. How you doing, Squirrel? Absolutely great. And one reason I'm doing great is we have a new listener who actually signed the Agile Manifesto. <laughs> oh, yeah? Who's that? That is Alistair Coburn. And uh, Alistair, spelt uh, C-O-C-K-B-U-R-N, by the way. His uh, name and information will be in the show notes. But uh, he writes this in response to our uh, Principle 7 discussion about working software being the measure of progress. He said that your story, Jeffrey, about estimating and being done uh, with 20% of the project by just doing its design gave him shivers. And he recalls in 1992 to three attempting to describe why incrementally working software was a valuable measure of progress to uncomprehending executives. He likened it to the origin of boat speed in knots. And I'll let people look that up. It has to do with knots in a rope and measuring your progress in a meaningful uh, way. And he said one more time, it gave him shivers. Well, it, 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 I was, I was uh, interested to read that because it, it did me, as, even as I was uh, telling the story, just really recalling the bad old days. And the interesting thing about uh, introducing that now is we can relate it to today's discussion on Principle 9, uh, continuous attention to technical excellence and good design enhances agility. And it, I think it relates to that question of how we tracked working software and the problem of having a design phase and keeping it as a measure of progress and saying, no, we're 20% done now that we finished design, is it is it also led to the idea that design was something you only did during the design phase? And that's really, I think, where the this principle originates then is to say, not only uh, in the same way that we want to now use working software as a way of measuring uh, progress, we also want to make sure that we're doing continuous design, that we're continuously paying attention to what we're doing technically. And uh, rather than having just sort of the 90s style design phase that the dreaded big upfront design, uh, which is bad for all kinds of reasons. Well, for example, when you're doing that big upfront design, you know less than you're ever going to know later because you haven't had your software encounter any real users yet or gotten any real integrations or anything. Nothing's happened. And so you're trying to do the design at kind of the maximally worst time. Well, it's, and that was the standard practice. And people would measure their success by basically how much could they get right. <laughs> if exactly. Was a good... And if they didn't get much of it right, then the project would be canceled and that would be okay. Because <laughs> well, you never built the software. It may be okay for their ego, but the real win was if you know you, yeah. you could predict that two years out, they're going to need this and they actually used it. That would be fantastic. But it, A few people did, but not many. Not many. And as, as, as you point out, many of, uh, of the projects in this era were, were canceled before completion. And so we really had a double sin of spending a lot of time uh, creating these designs for software that would never be written, let alone shipped. So it was it was waste in, in both sense. However, uh, I, and I think this that was the, the message of the era when these principles were written. Um, and, and I have I have the solution, Jeffrey. I, I know what we should do. <laughs> what we should just do is drop design altogether. Yeah. We should do no design whatsoever. <laughs> how, how does that sound? Well, that's not exactly in the spirit of the principle here, uh, but it it is. It seems to be the modern enemy of this principle. Uh, whereas previously the, the idea that we'd have to pay attention continuously was the news. Now it seems to be the idea we need to pay attention at, at all. 
Um, sure. Well, lean, lean startups. That's that's the the new thing, right? So we should all be very lean and uh, just do lots of A B tests. The design isn't really important, right? <laughs> yeah, I think that that's one of the things that people uh, like to to think, uh, or they quote Facebook. You know, say, look, it's move fast and break things. You know, why do we care about design? Uh, or they say we're you know we're just going to be throwing this away. We're like you said, we're a lean startup, so we're we're experimenting, we're learning, and uh, and design isn't useful. But uh, I think that doesn't uh, bear fruit in practice. This is really just sort of indulging uh, people's worst instincts in a way. And I, I think when people say, oh yeah, I don't, I don't, we don't want to talk about design. We don't do big upfront design. I have to sometimes stress, look, spending 15 minutes at a whiteboard is not <laughs> big upfront design. You know, if you're, Absolutely if you're not. printing out two inches of design document, that's big upfront design. But uh, uh, actually talking about what what we should be doing and, and what's the right trade-off should be making, that's that's not big up for design. And the assumption in the principle is that there's something out there that's kind of between these two where we don't need to uh, absorb everything that people might ever know or try to predict the world two years in the future, but that there is something that we can spend 15 minutes at a whiteboard doing that's valuable. There's, there's some body of knowledge out there that people have figured out that we can tap into. And if we don't know about it, we can find out. And if we're innovating and coming up with things, maybe we're going to be adding to that body of knowledge. But that knowledge about design and technical excellence exists. That's the argument I, of this principle. It can't, either exists or could exist. I think that's, yes, a, that's yes. a really good point. And, it's, and I think it's probably very much implicit in this principle because it was such a, a given for the people who were signing the Agile Manifesto. You, you had a lot of people who'd spent many years in, in the object-oriented design community. And uh, the idea that you would care about design was, was probably a given among them. That you probably couldn't have anticipated how things are. Sometimes uh, we were talking about this ahead of time, and it's sort of sometimes like, like kids these days. You know, they, they don't yep. get off my lawn. Yeah, yeah they don't appreciate that, that how much is out there to be learned. And, and I think there's a, a tremendous amount there in the, as you say, body of knowledge. And, and we talked about two different types. So there's, there's the body of knowledge around practices. So, and that might be. Uh, practices like TDD or uh, pair programming or even mob programming, or it could be something uh, uh, around language-specific uh, features or things you need for scalability or for resilience. Uh, or security. Yeah. So there's, there's there's all these sort of practices out there. And it, it should be obvious. So we hope that the more that you know of those practices, the, the more options you have, uh, the faster you can be, the, the the better choices you can make, and and that matters. Um, I think the, the other body of knowledge that's less uh, well understood is the body of effects. And there's there's the idea that we we got to this place of having the Agile Manifesto from people studying uh, the lessons of uh, what's the result of the choices we make, and uh, certainly uh, Toyota and lean manufacturing were a huge. Uh, influence on agile software development, and so to know the lessons of, say, building quality in, uh, which is one of the things that when we talk about technical excellence here, I'm sure people had in mind that we get huge wins uh, in terms of eliminating waste and uh, uh, rework, uh, uh, and was one of the types of waste. There's all these lessons uh, to be learned out there that also are part of the body of knowledge of a professional, and I think both of those. Uh, are important for people to have uh, and are often missed by people who, uh, when they, they scorn the lessons of the past and, uh, and you know, think that, well, this is all different now. Now we, we can just go ahead and, and behave very differently because we're lean. 
um, but you don't if you don't know where the, how you got here, then you really don't know what sort of trade-offs and choices you're making. And that that idea of trade-offs, that judgment about what we should be doing, that's really what stands out to me when we talk about excellence here. Technical excellence for me is excellence in judgment uh, and in and in learning. So what what exactly do you mean by uh, excellence uh, in in judgment? So we're we're going to have to kind of steer between these two things. We don't want to create two inches of design documents. We don't want to ignore design completely. So we're going to have to apply some sort of judgment. How are we going to get that? Well, well, that's that's always the challenge, right? Then there's a, a great phrase: How do we get good judgment? And uh, uh, like the idea that the good judgment comes from experience. And experience comes from bad judgment. So, in a sense, we're going to have to learn from mistakes. But learning is only an option; it's not a guarantee. We can have bad judgment and not learn from it. So, we we're only going to develop good judgment if we're paying attention. Which is why I like the idea of this principle, saying that you pay continuous attention to technical excellence and good design. And, you, and it also means not being dogmatic. So something I don't let people do when they work with me is to say that <laughs> this is the best practice. I've, I've looked it up. Look, it's here. It's on page 73 of this book. Therefore, it's the thing that we should do. So paying attention also involves paying attention to your environment and what's happening for you and getting feedback from it. And that that's a great point. And and this, as you say, we're kind of you know sailing between uh, two poles here. The people who say, you know, we don't, we we shouldn't care about design because you know all all we're trying to do is learn as quickly as possible, and they're not realizing how design can help them with that. And the the people who say every 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 single thing must be polished to perfection. That any uh, lowering of our technical standards is an insult against our profession. And I think this is kind of the straw man version that people would have of the software craftsmanship. And I don't think it's what software craftsmanship people who started it had in mind, but it has attracted some people who who can take that sort of very dogmatic uh, line. Indeed. So uh, the thing we want to be measuring is whether our excellence is actually working, whether it's actually giving us working software frequently. Yeah, yeah, that's a nice tie back here to, again to episode seven and uh, and and or, or rather principle seven, where we talked about uh, working software as, as a measure of progress, and that's how we know what we're doing is good or excellent, uh, because sometimes people can claim that they're doing things for technically excellent reasons, for good design reasons, but they're failing at that hurdle. I know you have a good good story about that. I, I do. It's a uh, uh, settle back. This is this is a good one that has a, a few a few phases. So the first phase is when the company. This is pre Squirrel. So the company was not at all focused on good technical practices, design, um, working software, or anything. Produced an awful lot of software very quickly, but a lot of it didn't work. And when it did work, it worked through sealing wax and hope and prayers and uh, <laughs> other things. And uh, after I showed up, I said gee, guys, so this doesn't seem excellent to me, and I don't see excellent results either. And they said, don't worry, Squirrel, we got it all under control. I said, that sounds good. What are you doing about it? And they said, well, we found this fantastic framework. It's called Symphony, and our PHP programming listeners will know that's a, a framework. Those who aren't might not know. It's, uh, it's a bit like Django or Rails or any of those. And they said, we're migrating to Symphony. It's all going to be okay. The, all the spaghetti code will be gone. I said, that sounds awesome. How's that project going? Well, we started it a year ago said, that sounds super. And and do you have any sense how long it's going to take? And they said, well, it should take about a year. So how, wh- when that's, do you think they would be finished, great. Jeffrey? <laughs> well, any day now. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's what I said. And they said, no, we're, we're about a year from being done. And I said, right. you know what? I think we're going to be a year from being done for a real long time. 
because this big switch, they had done big design up front to figure out how to do the switch and their design made perfect sense a year ago, but it didn't make any sense now. And it wasn't going to make, it's going to make even less sense a year from now. So that looked like a way that uh, was was not going to work. So they'd gone from the, the Hackett mode to the big design upfront mode, and neither one had really worked. So the judgment we exercised was to say, we need a way of moving forward. We need a way of updating. This was a retailer, so we had different pages, one for t-shirts and one for jackets and one for something else. And this wasn't a great design decision, but they had been built separately. So uh, there actually was an opportunity to, to switch gradually. So we invested some design in a project that took probably a few weeks. I can't quite remember how long. And that project got us to a way of using Symphony with the old code so that we could migrate one page at a time. And then we applied the Boy Scout rule, which says if uh, you find some, if you're working on something, leave it better than you found it. In our case, it was uh, leave the code in Symphony world better designed rather than Spaghetti world, and we were able to do that page by page. And uh, I think that still continues now, years later, that there's this gradual migration happening. But that led to working software regularly, gave, it, gave us good balance between the, the the two approaches. And it's it's interesting that there. I, I, I'm going to sort of play devil's advocate here for a couple of ways. And one thing is we're saying that continuous uh, attention to uh, good design is important, but somehow you end up working for these people who, you know, hadn't done it. So maybe uh, good design is only needed, you know, after you're successful, after you get to a certain stage, you know, that seems to match this, this story. I mean, they, you know, they were able to bring you in, so they must've had some level of, of success. Well, and the the principle says it enhances agility, and they were not very agile. They they were they produced a lot of software, but it didn't work, <laughs> and uh, they had a lot of uh, difficulties and challenges because they weren't able to actually make working software as frequently as they would like. So yes, it worked, and lots of things will work. And uh, if you'd like it to work better, maybe you'd like to pay attention to technical excellence and good design. That's what this principle says. Right. And I think that I'm reminded of an earlier conversation where we said, well, you can always use get lucky. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and that survivorship bias is a thing. Yeah, so right, exactly. So you know, there were all the places, all the people who didn't uh, follow that and uh, it, they weren't around anymore. But you do, you do, some people will make it through. The, the other thing I, I want to mention, because we talked about not being dogmatic, but then you just brought up the Boy Scout rule. Um, and that sounds... Like you're being dogmatic here. You're going to go make a change. Well, then, you know, by God, you've got to move it over to Symphony. Uh, what, what's your, what, you know, what's your response to that? Well, we certainly didn't do it in every case. And if there was something that needed doing for, you know, Christmas matters a lot and Easter and so on for retailers, so uh, we would work to a deadline. Sometimes we'd do it the old hacky way and then uh, make the migration later. So we were certainly willing to be flexible and uh, respond to what people needed, but we followed that as uh, more like a guideline. And, and, and I think that's, that idea is it's, it, we have the uh, idea here that you, you can pay in continuous attention to what's the right thing is being able to make a, a deliberate choice as opposed to either doing nothing by default and and without reflection or with dogmatically applying it every single time. So I think that's the what we wanted to highlight here is that uh, your example, while someone might read it as, uh, you know, the way out was to be dogmatic and apply this rule, that in fact, uh, uh, that was became the overwhelming default, but you still had judgment involved. Yep. Now, last time that we, we ended uh, our, our last podcast, uh, which was on having um, sustainable development and people that uh, should be able to have constant pace indefinitely. We, we talked a bit about a sports analogy. Mm -hmm. and, um, 
you know, how much are you acting like a, a professional manager, performance athletes? And I, I think uh, something comes back here. Uh, we could we could bring the same question in. So if we're saying that we think people should have continuous attention to technical excellence and good design, I don't think that's something that really can be left to individual judgment and individual initiative. What what kind of things can we do systematically? What what kind of uh, ways can we ensure that we're regularly paying attention to this? What do you have some ideas about what people might try? Sure, and none of these are revolutionary, but they are nice to think about in this context and can give you some some concrete actions you can take if you're convinced by this principle. Uh, the one that uh, I've seen often work and that uh, uh, one client has a particularly good example of is the lunch and learn, right? So you have something that is a regular activity which reinforces to the team that they should be learning about this body of knowledge we've referred to and picking up new ideas and applying them. And one of my clients actually started by watching Uncle Bob videos. Uncle Bob um, is the originator of the Boy Scout rule and the writer of Clean Code and so on. You can uh, follow some links in the show notes to him. And uh, they said, well, gee, this guy seems to know something and he's been around a while. So we'll watch him. They're kind of wacky videos. So they were fun to watch over pizza. And then over time, they got kind of bored. They said, well, we've, we've seen enough Uncle Bob. We kind of get the idea, but we want to learn more things. So then they would have Uncle George or Uncle Mary or Uncle somebody else. They get somebody from outside or inside to come and talk to them about some topic they were interested in. So uh, they don't call it Uncle Bob anymore. It's Uncle whoever's visiting this week. And uh, one one point about this, though, is that it wasn't just a question of of the the lunch and the learning. It, people were actually applying what they were were doing. I, I I think it's important to bring in here that when we say learning, there's no it's not actually learning unless your behavior changes. So this is a case where they were not just watching, but also then turning around and applying it. And I think the accountability for that is often missed and very valuable. Right. Uh, at Tim, we've, we've had something similar, which is we have a, a, te a technology study group. And so we've looked at sort of challenges we have coming up and we'll set up and say we're adopting event sourcing. People did some event sourcing experiments and uh, we use MySQL. So there was a, a couple sessions on the internals of MySQL and how it does data storage so people could learn things in more detail. Um, and I'm curious how, how people were accountable for that. So I, I doubt anyone at Tim is in there changing MySQL internals. But how, how did you <laughs> see that they were using that knowledge that they picked up well, to become more excellent, to be more agile? Well, that's a, that's a good point. This is uh, kind of can uh, look forward to future principles here. We've only, we've only got a few left, but one of them talks about self-organized teams. And this was a topic people had... Uh, chosen in a self-organized fashion because they thought it was relevant to some of the problems they were having. They thought that their ability to make uh, decisions and trade-offs uh, about how they were tuning MySQL would be better served if they had a better understanding of the internals. And so that was the, that was the uh, originator saying that we we but I think it's really a, a very interesting application this idea of continuous attention because it, I mean, part of it is that, that continuous attention helps you identify your gaps and your lacks. And you could say, oh, you know, we're actually, we're, we're not very good at this. <laughs> How can yep. we be better? Let's, let's go try to be better and then apply it. Mm -hmm. and, the, and that's a nice one that's easy to measure. It might or might not have worked in your case. I don't know, but you, you could go and look to see, are we better at tuning? That's right. And, 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 and there are lots of ways to measure that. that that's right. And, and over time, we can say, you know, have these experiments that we've done at different times, have they, have they made their way into what we do? And, and we have a very good track record for that. We can say, for example, our move to events sourcing a few years ago was something that was driven by various experiments, first by study and then by using a 
critical path projects, and then we've moved it into our our main uh, product. So it was uh, a gradual evolution, but came from the idea of we think we should be better at this. We think we should gain knowledge and then apply it and doing it over time. Of course, the important element here uh, we're talking about is the the learning and uh, the uh, attention and reflection of what's happened. You know, you you had said uh, is are we getting the benefits of our technically excellent, we hope, decisions and, and good design? And that really comes through practice. And that idea of the judgment of what we should do in the practice, I think, is a good lead into what we're going to be talking about next time. Uh, you want to tell us what, what, next, uh, what our next podcast is going to be about? All, all about doing less. So how to be simple and why simplicity might help you just as much as technical excellence. And I think that's an area where everyone has some notion of what simple is and not everyone agrees. So uh, an awful lot of judgment to apply there. Right. So that'll be a, a really good way to pick up from this next time. Sounds great. I'll see you then. All right. Sounds good. See you then, school. Cool.